Hello, everybody. I'm so happy you're here. Hey, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we're going to have it on the screens. But before we begin, I just had a couple of things I wanted to address. First, I've had uh, multiple people ask me about how they could help with flooding in Louisiana. Listen, if you would like to give to that, we are currently trying to identify the most effective and most responsible way to give towards that. We have a few local partners there that we're working with. We just want to make sure that it would be, uh, we want to do it the best way possible. So if you'd like to give to that, as soon as this week, we should identify who we'll be working with and we'll pass that on, all of it directly on. Secondly, uh, for those of you who are going to be watching this in Sydney, hello, uh, Stephen Carolyn, Pastor Stephen Carolyn are there this weekend. And I hear that you guys are thinking a bit that it's time to find a building. So the Sydney church has been meeting in a school and they are looking for a permanent home. So um, we're praying for that and we're praying for provision and an opportunity. So I think God's going to take care of that. We'll just keep praying. Now, Exodus chapter 32. If, if you like epic stories, you're going to love this chapter. If you like things that might make you scratch your head a little bit, you're going to like this chapter. If you like things that are a little bit weird, um, you're going to like it. It's got everything from violence and death to uh, some weird practices to God, Moses talking God out of destroying the people. I mean, it's, it's all there. And here's what's happening. So Moses, 40 days before this, had gone up onto Mount Sinai. This is the time when God has given him the law. And it's, it's a long time, and all the people know is that up on the top of this mountain, they see this consuming fire. This fire had led them, okay? It had led them at night. It had always been this point of comfort and this defense as they've wandered through the desert. There's a pillar of fire that appears at night. But now this pillar of fire seems to be on top of Mount Sinai, and Moses has climbed up there, and he hasn't come down for 40 days. So it's been too long of a wait for the people. And in the midst of this wait, they decide this. This is the title of, of, of the talk. They're going to create a designer God, a designer God. One of their own making, one of their own choosing, one of their own preferences. And so what we have is Moses is about ready to come down. And things, have, 40 days, okay? Has anybody ever had an experience in life and you didn't mean for it to get that bad, but you thought, how did I get here? Like, what just happened? S certain thing after certain thing. I don't think they intended for this to happen, but it happened. And they had just made a vow 40 days before that they would obey God. We read that last week in chapter 24. They would obey God, that they were surrendered to him. But in a matter of 40 days, the whole nation can just gravitate to this terribly unhealthy place. So we need to talk about delays, and we're going to talk about what holiness looks like. I know that's really a, a biblical, churchy-type word, but holiness, what is it? Because it's something that's lacking in their community. So let's read together. We've got a lot of text to read. I'll make a few comments in the midst of it, because it's a story that just needs to be read. Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long, 40 days, and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. He is the priest. He's kind of the second man in charge. He's in charge of the spiritual life of the camp and said, come, make us gods, notice this, gods, plural, who will go before us. They want to get to the promised land. 
They've already been camping for months. And God has stopped. He's just paused on top of the mountain, and they want to jumpstart the journey. And so they say, listen, Aaron, since God seems to be preoccupied up on that mountain, we're just ready to be done. Make us some new gods who will go before us. So the good news is they realize their dependency. They realize that they need someone to go ahead of them. The bad news is they're going to create a designer God. They're going to substitute something in because they want to get moving. Jump-starting the journey, I think we're all vulnerable to that when we wait. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. There's deep uncertainty. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. This was part of the plunder they brought out of Egypt. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, over and over throughout the summer, we have looked at this, this God, Yahweh, who says, I brought you out of Egypt. They know they're free. But here's a designer God for them. And they'll say, now we're going to attribute to this God that he's the deliverer. He's the God that brought us out, the cow God. He's the one who set us free. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. I want you to notice that word Lord there. We're going to come back to that. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, which they were just instructed to do just a few chapters earlier. That was, that was accurate. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up. Now, this is a tough phrase. This word revelry, anytime it's used in the Old Testament, it has sexual connotations. Okay, so this wasn't kind of like a good, healthy Super Bowl party. Okay, it's getting weird, okay? It's unhealthy. So they got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people, listen to how God's gonna refer to them, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. How long does it take to become corrupt? 40 days? The nature of the human heart. They have become quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. God says, listen, this is it. This is it. 40 days, they've left me. Moses, we're going to start over with just you. And the intervening verses, which we're not going to read, Moses, it's a beautiful picture of how to pray for people. Read that. Moses says, oh, God. I, I, apparently, God, God was testing Moses. Moses, are you going to stand up for these people? And Moses stands up and he says, God, have mercy on them. Be kind to them. And of course, God does relent. So when Moses approached the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned and he threw the tablets 
out of his hands. These are the Ten Commandments which God had just inscribed in stone. And uh, he crashes them to the ground, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you? that you led them into such great sin. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron said. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us about of Egypt, we, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Let me just pause here for a second. Anybody involved in leadership in any way, whether it's in the home, in the business, in, in schools, whatever it might be, I think this is, this is a great lesson for us to learn about leaders. Here's a tendency for all leaders. You blame the people when things go poorly. It's just natural. You, 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 it was out of my control. As Moses left in chapter 24, he said, Moses, he said, Aaron, you're in charge. And Aaron acquiesces. Aaron doesn't have the leadership capacity that when the people are saying, we want something different, what does he do? He wants to stay popular with the people. He wants to appease. And so rather than stand up and lead and say, we won't do that. Hang on. Trust this God. Moses will come back. What does he do? He caves in. And then when, he, when he's called to account by Moses... He points his finger at the people. He doesn't take any personal responsibility. If you're leading in any way, learn to take personal responsibility. Learn to stand up. Learn to say, that's not okay. If you need to be popular, that is a very vulnerable place to be in, in leadership. Leadership means you won't always be popular. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control so, and so become a, the laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites, this was the tribe of people who were the priests, all the Levites uh, rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword on his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded and that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Now, I know it's a fairly small number if you've got a million people. An interesting note, here they are on Mount Sinai. Moses has just brought the law, the new covenant down. 3,000 people die. Well, if you went to the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, this is the day, for those of us who wouldn't be familiar with this, where the Holy Spirit comes to earth after Jesus leaves. It's the second Pentecost. This was the first, the first arrival. This is the second. That day, in 1450 B.C., 3,000 people are, are killed. 50 days after Jesus leaves the earth, 3,000 people are saved. It's interesting that now here's a new covenant. The first one brought death. The second one, as Jesus sends the Spirit, actually brings life and salvation. And Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today. Notice the word set apart, the phrase set apart. For you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. 
But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Indeed he does, but the people continue to have these significant problems. So here we have so many things happening. I'd just like to walk through a few things. First of all, let's talk about delays. Let's talk about waiting. Let's talk about the fact that somewhere in your spiritual journey, whether you're just beginning or whether you've been walking with God for years, you're going to experience delays, just like these people do. Where you have a place to go, you have a goal in mind, and it just seems like the Lord has stopped. He's stopped. And you, you don't want to stop. Here's the first thing. God's delays tend to either detour us or deepen us. As you find these times in your own life where life seems to be on hold, financially, in relationships, with our jobs, maybe waiting for kids, or waiting to get into a home, maybe it's spiritually you're hoping to, to, to find something new, you will find these delays. And here's what's going to happen. Anytime you and I face a delay, we will have the same choice that the Israelites had in 1450 BC. It will either detour us, and that's exactly what they did. They, they, they just they went in a direction that was so, it's just shocking that they end up there. Or a delay with God can deepen you. When it deepens you, you learn to wait. I, just as, as we're talking about this, I think of, of James near the very back of your Bible. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. James says this. He says, consider it pure joy, my friends, when there's trials and tribulations and things that are interrupted and aren't happening. When those things happen to you, he says, consider it pure joy. Because this testing, these delays, what do they do? Those are actually the times when your life is enhanced, where you develop perseverance, where you develop character, where you actually grow. Interestingly, it's typically in the delay times where we experience growth. It's in the times when we feel frustrated. We will choose, I, I don't know how to say this, but I think we'll either choose to freak out or to learn to have faith. When I freak out, what do I do? I, I take matters into my own hands. I do what I want to do. I, I build my own golden calf. When I have faith, I pause, I wait, I trust, I believe. Don't try to jumpstart the journey when you're in a delay. Be patient. God is doing more than you and I could ever imagine. Secondly, our desire for security makes us vulnerable to idolatry. Idolatry. Now, I know that most of us would say, listen, we don't deal with idolatry like they did. And it's true. It's true. Not, nobody this week, you know, took their gold collection and formed a calf and worshipped it. It's not like in your pocket right now. I understand that. I understand that. But what idolatry is, we've seen as we've walked through the book of Exodus, it's when I put my trust, my hope, when I look for security from something, for, for, from something other than God. And so an, an idol, if I'm looking for significance in a relationship, that relationship 
can be an idol. If I'm looking for a sense of peace and well-being in drugs or alcohol or some form of addiction, that's actually an idol. It's something that I am, I am worshiping, I'm sacrificing to. And so what happens is the people want security. They, they were secure when Moses was there. They knew that Moses had this unique relationship with God. And now they feel vulnerable. Now they feel insecure. Now they wonder if they'll ever get to this promised land. And so because of their insecurity, they look for idols. And that's why you and I, we begin to give our hearts to things other than God. Because we're insecure. Because I feel small. Because I feel insignificant. Because I feel unloved. Because I feel out of control. I give myself to something to gain security. It's exactly what they're doing here. Now, for them, they create this calf. Most likely, it's because one of, the, one of the Egyptians' primary deities, remember they just spent 400 years in Egypt, was Apis, A-P-I-S, who was a god of Egypt, and he was a bull god. They, they, they formed a, a full-grown cow, and they covered it in gold, and they would worship it. Now, apparently they didn't have the time or the resources to make apis, so they make a calf. Aaron does the best with what he's given. He makes a calf. And see, back, back, back in Egypt, the Egyptians worshipped Apis, the bull god, and their lives seemed great. They were the richest, most powerful nation on the face of the earth. So maybe, maybe we could find some of that security because this god we've been following, sometimes he disappears on us. Sometimes he makes us wait. What if, the, what if people come in, they, they, the, the marauders come and they take advantage of us? We want to move on. So we'll worship something familiar. And this calf, what is the, the whole crowd of people, they bow down before it. They begin to worship it. And it gives them this sense that everything's okay between them and God. Our idols tend to come in pairs. Okay, This is going to be a little, a little interesting, but, but hang in there with me for a second. Idols come in pairs. We usually want an idol because there, there's two things that happen. We want something, I'm going to use a theological word, but you'll understand why, imminent, imminent. I believe we have a, 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 yeah, a slide for this. What's something imminent? Imminent means something close. It means something I can touch. It means something I can see, something that I can control. And so this calf, okay, this God up on a mountain, you can't control him. He's in absolute control. He may make you wait for a long time. But this calf, you can pick it up and move it. You can say, hey, tonight I'm bringing the calf home to my house. And boy, look at him. And he's shiny. Let's shine him up tonight. He looks great. So our idols come in pairs because we want something like that. We want something close. But when we're... When we're going through pain, difficulty, when we're broken, when we need healing, we want something transcendent, meaning something bigger than us, something that can heal us. If you were there and you watched this calf being built, would you really think that this calf had any power? I, I think it's unlikely. Maybe he thought whatever the Egyptians, Apis, they worshipped him. Maybe some of that's over here in this calf. But literally, you watched Aaron. He's 
cutting wood and then he's taking the gold and he overlays the calf and everybody's like, woohoo! This is the type of God we like because you can put it in your pocket and take it home with you. This is the type of God that we tell this God what to do. But this Yahweh God, this big God, this transcendent God, he tells us what to do. And so when we're vulnerable to idols, what we're looking for is we're looking for something we can control. That's why money can be an idol. I can begin to depend on money. And I can put it in my pocket and I can put it in my bank account. And whenever I get nervous about the future, I can log on and go, oh, it's still there. I'll be fine. I can open up my wallet. Oh, it's there. It's just like this calf. But that idol could be your job. It could be a hobby. It could be a person because you can actually grab it and hold it and it makes you feel secure. So the challenge is this, is that we desire to substitute something known for the unknown, something tangible for the intangible, something controllable for something uncontrollable. And because they can't control, God is making them wait for 40 days. They're going to take control. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been called a control freak. I want you to know that. Sometimes by my wife. When I am attempting to take control, oftentimes I am dealing with some form of idolatry because I don't want the uncertainty. That's exactly what's happening for them. Now, there's a very interesting phrase in verse uh, 5 of chapter 32. I think we've got it. I'd love for you to put it on the screens. Aaron says this. He's made the calf. He says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now, the word he uses here is Yahweh, this unique word. There's no other God in the world named this. It's the, God, it's the word that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. It's the Hebrew form of to be. So he's everything. So what, what is really happening here? So they're worshiping the golden calf, but Aaron says, okay, we got the golden calf. I'm going to build an altar, and tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh. It's like all mixed up. Do you see that? We'll worship the calf, and we'll have a festival to Yahweh. This is often called syncretism. It's syncretism. Where we take, okay, we'll worship God, but let's also add in a little of this. this is, let's make our own designer God. Where I've heard a lot of people say this. One of my favorite things when I travel is I just ask people about their spiritual journey. And people will tell me stories. And oftentimes in the United States of America, what people do is, well, you know, you know, I take a little of this and a little of this Eastern thing. And I take a little of this Christianity and a little of this orthodoxy. And I take a little of this. And I've kind of developed my own way of worshiping. Syncretism. I take what I like. I design my own God that I get to worship on my own terms. That's exactly what is happening here. And it's insecurity that makes us do that. A hybridized form of worship. Now, let's move on to this idea of holiness. Because we've got to deal with the difficulty of the passage. I mean, anybody, when Moses said to the Levites, strap on your sword, and they go out and kill their relatives, and and we're like, ugh, couldn't we have done this another way? Right? That's how I felt all week. 
Lord, is there another way? Can I skip those verses? Uh-uh, can't do it. So let's talk about holiness. When they strayed away, they strayed away from holiness. Holiness means to be set apart. It doesn't mean to be perfect. But it means that I am focused in. I am set apart to God. And they weren't set apart to God. They were set apart to a golden calf, to whatever was going to be most useful to them. So holiness. Here's a few things about holiness. First, holiness will always require intentionality. It will always require intentionality. Obedience. It never happens naturally. Holiness, living God's way, being obedient. I don't think that you and I will ever get to the place where I don't actually have to be thinking about it. Because everything in life is like, it's like culture is like a stream. And it is moving in a certain direction. And if you hop into that stream, unless you're intentional, where are you going to go? You are going to go downstream. There's a natural pressure. It takes intentionality that either I'm going to stand my ground or I'm moving upstream. And if you want to live a life that's set apart to God, you will often feel like you're moving upstream. Anybody ever tried to walk upstream? It's slightly more difficult than going downstream, isn't it? It requires effort. It's going to require your muscles. You're going to be thinking about your footing. And that's what holiness is. They just thought, let's just go with the flow. The Egyptians do this. It works fine for them. I have to be intentional. I have to think about decisions. I have to have this question resonating in my mind. How will this decision impact my God? Is this something that he would say, please, or something that he's already told me no? Holiness always requires intentionality. Second thing about holiness, the pursuit of happiness will always jeopardize our holiness. We, we love to be happy. I'd love for all of us to be happy. I get that. But one of the things that everything from advertising to, to books to movies tells us is that if you can just pursue the things that make you happy, you'll just be, everything will be grand. Like just the pursuit of happiness. And that's what so many people in this world are doing. And so we go through careers and we go through spouses and, and we, we go through finances and homes. Why? Because we're pursuing happiness. If I, maybe if I'm this, I'll be happy. Maybe if I'm with that person, I'll finally be happy. We're all looking for happiness. I understand. I want to be happy too. But the pursuit of happiness has the potential to jeopardize my holiness. Because the things that make me happy may not be associated with the things that make me holy. And it takes a long vision to realize I'm going to say no to my need for immediate gratification. I'm going to say no to this thing that I, something in me says, if I did that, I would be happy because I want to be holy. And holiness has long-term happiness. Another thing about holiness. There's at least two enemies of holiness. Here they are. Two enemies of holiness. One, my personal desires. Goes back to what we just talked about. There's a battle within everybody in this room, wherever you're at in your spiritual life. There is an old part of you. It's called your 
old nature. It's called your sin nature. And it, it lives on instinct and it wants what it wants. And there's a new part of you if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. He reinvigorates your life. And there's this new man, this new woman inside of you. And when I am pursuing these old things, the old ways, it's going to be an enemy to holiness. The second enemy of holiness is popular opinion. It's not easy when a million people are like, let's make the calf God. That sounds good. I bet there are a whole bunch of people in the camp who are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We just told God we would never do that. It is the first commandment. Have no other gods before us. Remember, we all collectively said, we'll never have another God. No, no. There are a whole bunch of people in camp who are like, no, wait just a few more days, see if Moses comes down. But what happened? The swell of popular opinion. People just started to back off like, okay, uh, I would hate to raise a ruckus. I'd hate to go against the grain here. People didn't stand up. A popular opinion, there are times when I'm just going to do the thing that's going to bring the least resistance, and that will jeopardize my holiness. Now, you know what that's like. Teenagers these days, I, I got two of them right now. Just graduated one into the 20s. It's such a difficult time to be a teenager. Popular opinion, everybody else is doing is going to be an enemy to my holiness, me being set apart to God. Now, I, I want to move in finally to this idea because this is a massive failure, right? This is a massive failure. I mean, there's deep consequences. 3,000 people are killed. They, Moses can't even stop the party until it's like, wow, wow, we better, what's going on? They just got caught up in the whole thing and it's going on for days. So here's the final thing I want to address is, how do we restart after failure? Because <laughs> anybody ever said this after you've messed up? You say, well, nobody's perfect, right? <laughs> it's, it's a great defense mechanism, but it's true. Nobody's perfect. We're, we're gonna have days where we've jeopardized our holiness and, and we've broken our vows to God and we lived in disobedience. So the thing is, is here's the beautiful story. Although it's very tense and and Moses is going to try to say, no, 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 don't kill him yet, God. Give him another chance. And, and then Moses wants to kill him. And God's like, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll give him another chance. Here's the deal. God's always a God who gives a second chance. So how do we restart after failure? Because as we were talking about this, everybody in the room, something came into your mind like, yeah, I've surrendered my holiness. I've given in to popular opinion. I followed my instincts. So how are we going to restart after failure? Here's how we restart. Number one. Realize that when I make a choice to be holy, it will always lead to some form of separation. Okay? If you want to get back on your feet, you remember this the next time you fall down. It will always lead to some form of separation in my life. So when Moses goes to the entrance of the tent and he just says this, whoever is on the side of the Lord, come to me. And apparently... There's 900 and some odd thousand people who are like, this is too much fun, Moses. Revelry is quite exciting. And there's 3,000 people who go, you know what? I'm going to separate myself from the crowd and I'm going to be on the side of the Lord. 
And eventually the people in concert, I mean, there's this deep consequence of 3,000 people dying, but they realize I've got to be separate from that. When you want to get back on your feet, <clears throat> even if you're in the midst of the revelry, God's always going to say, who's on my side? I'm giving you another chance. I see what's going on, but come to me, come to me. And that separation, I'm not talking about living a monastic life. I'm not talking about standing out from the crowd because of the bold t-shirt you wear. That, that, that's not what this is about. But there's something about I'm going, there's certain things when I'm with people I love and my friends who, who they, they may be so far from God, so spiritually unresolved. There's just certain things where I'm with them and I don't have to make them feel weird, but I'm not a part of that. I just, I just need to separate myself. I'm not condemning, condemning them. Okay, part, part, of, part of why... I think some believers have just caused a lot of chaos is because rather than, rather than condemning people, just step back and say, ah, that's not for me. No, go ahead. Holiness is a personal thing and it leads to separation. Here's the second way that we get started again. Realize that every idol needs to be ground up and eaten. Okay, I don't know how else to say it. I, I just love it. Moses breaks the Ten Commandments. I mean, all this is dramatic, right? <laughs> Then Moses goes, give me that calf. And he burns it in the fire. And then he grinds it into powder. And they have this big collective area where they gather their water. And he sprinkles the golden calf onto the water. And he makes them drink it. If you thought that golden calf had some sort of mystical power, all of a sudden you realize, I just drank him. Hey, remember all that plunder we had when we came out of Egypt? We were like financially well off. Now my gold's in my belly. And it's not going to stay there long. I mean, the whole thing, the irony that what God is doing is like, listen, listen, you want to worship a cow? All right. You worship your cow and then you're going to eat it. See, there's something when, when I realized that I'm vulnerable to idolatry, whether it's, I mean, your idol could be on your computer. It could be whatever it is. There's something to, like, I have to acknowledge it and I have to eat it and I have to realize it's gone. That was mine. I've got to grind it up. I've got to burn it. I've got to get rid of it. You got to change the narrative. So anybody in the room, I have hundreds of friends who've experienced addiction. Some of us are still dealing with addiction. There's some point where you have to look at the bottle and you have to realize, this isn't my story anymore. This can't be my God. And you have to destroy it. I mean, I've been with people when they call me over and they're like, come, Nate, you gotta come over. I'm pouring it all down the sink. Like, I've got to get rid of the idol. I've gotta find a way. I've been with people who have been addicted to things on the internet. And they're like, you gotta come over. I come over and they like take their computer in the backyard and smash it on a rock because they realize, the idol has to die. And then what do I do? I take the computer parts and I grind it up and I make them drink it. No, I don't, I don't. There's mercury in there, otherwise we would. But the point is you just got to deal with it. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to say, I'm gonna turn this into powder, into dust. It can't control me any longer. Then lastly, how do you get back on your feet after failure? Surrender to the God who is bigger than my capacity to understand. See, the, the whole challenge is that 
They wanted a God that did what they wanted to do. That's, that's idolatry for all of us. At some point, I just have to surrender to this God that does things I don't understand. He's bigger than me. He calls the shots. I don't get to tell him what to do. I'm surrendered. Some of you, even in your prayer life, I know I do this sometimes. When I pray, I'm basically just telling God what to do. Sometimes you need to back up and surrender. God, I'm not the one who tells you what to do. You tell me what to do. I surrender my life to you. And once you surrender, guess what? The journey continues. It was a tragedy that 3,000 of them were killed. But eventually, years later, a million plus are going to make it into the promised land because God's the God who gives second chances. But they're going to have to learn over and over and be reminded every few years that they have to surrender to the God who is bigger than they are. Will you take a moment and pray with me? One of the verses we read, Lord, you, you said this. You said, for they are a stiff-necked people. And when I read that verse, I thought, I understand that. It, it would be a horse. You're trying to get it to go a certain direction. You're using the reins to move it. But that horse is obstinate, and it wants something else. So you can't bend its neck. God, we're stiff-necked people. Lord, sometimes there's something we want and we're so focused on it. And you are leading us. You've got the reins of our life pulling us in another direction, but we're stiff-necked. If that's us, Lord, we know right now we're stiff-necked. Here's what we want to do. We want to be pliable. We want to surrender. Forgive us for being our own gods. Forgive us for creating gods that are in our image. So you're the guy who made us in your image, but we want to make gods in our image, gods that we can manipulate. We want to bring together a hybridized version of Christianity that's easier. But this is about surrender. Lord, I pray for some people in this room, and you've been speaking to them that there is an idol. God, would they grind that thing up? that thing be destroyed with the power that it has over them because when we worship something we give it power would we realize that there is nothing in that golden calf there's nothing in that idol you alone are good I just want to make one final invitation if there's anybody in the room and you just you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and I know that's a big word. It's a disturbing word, but that's exactly what Jesus invites you to do. He invites you to pick up a cross, meaning to deny your comfort and to pursue him and to follow him wherever he goes. And you don't have control over that any longer, but he wants to walk with you. He'll take your sin, your shame, your failure, your hopes and dreams, and he'll say, follow me. If you're at that point in your life, would you just bravely raise your hand and wave at me? I want to make eye contact with you. If you're saying, Tonight, I'm surrendering to Jesus. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for your courage. Anybody else in the room? Yeah, absolutely. You're his daughter. 
You're made new. Anyone else? Anybody in the balcony? If that's you, wave at me, would you? All right, beautiful. For anybody who's watching out in Sydney, feel free to do the exact same thing. Thanks for these new lives, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, would you applaud? There are a couple of people that raised their hands. Big steps. Big deal. All right. I told you it was kind of an epic story, huh? We had it all. So let it linger in your own heart. This is one I think you need to think about, respond to, and pray through it with the Lord. Read the story. God bless you as you go. If you raise your hand or if you need a Bible or you have questions about faith, go to the Welcome Center out there. There's free Bible. Love for you to get in a rooted group. Love you to move towards baptism. Otherwise, be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust. God bless you.